Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sophie from London, and you're listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is, why are some men so weird about taking up activities like knitting or sewing? Okay, here comes the show. And remember, question everything. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast for myself, comedian, writer, and occasional actor Dame Baptiste, my producer friend Howard Cohen, a.k.a. The Hizzer. Hello! And a mix of very special guests posed to questions that need to be asked. And we are talking everything from... We are talking everything from Sophie from London's question, why are some men so weird about taking up activities like knitting or sewing? Dane, this has a, a Dane Baptiste slam dunk answer written all over it, mate. Go for it. Um, um, I think, I mean, I would say myself, I didn't have any problems sewing. I went to a technology college and so I had to do a bit of study with textiles. So if I need to load a sewing machine or to restitch a sock or a hole in a pair of sweatpants, I can do that. I consider that to be very practical. Um, but I think in answer to Sophie's question, I think a lot of the time we live in a world where we tend to be so rigid about ideas about the masculine and feminine. Anything that pertains to feminine is supposed to be for women when that's not really the case because the humanities, uh, creative arts are all, uh, I guess, the prosperity or ability to thrive within those kind of fields study is based on the feminine hemisphere of your brain. So the feminine side deals with creativity, but some people resist that. So some men are weird about taking it up because also they realise if they prove they can do it, then women won't do it for them. So I have, a lot of, <laughs> so I have an old housemate who used to do like a shit job of washing up because he thought I'd just be like, fine, I'll just do it then. No, you stay there until you get it right! Uh, Sophie, as I pro- as promised, a slam dunk Dame Baptiste answer. <laughs> and on this podcast, we ask and answer all the questions, don't we, Dame? Absolutely. People can feel free to ask whatever they want. We will never feel like we've been stitched up. I only did that because... Oh. Howard, you're a dad. That was for you. What are you growing there? <laughs> I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> it's a, it's a joyful grow. Yeah, growing it is like you enjoy it. Oh, man. Who have I become? Uh, but yeah, so we yeah. answer all the questions. No question is too big, small or stupid for this particular podcast. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. You'll never miss an episode. Or subscribe to us on Acast, the world's largest podcast network, where you can see our conversations with all of the very special guests we have on the show. With that being said, on today's show is a British political activist. He's the co-founder of the pro-European Union advocacy group, Our Future, Our Choice. At the age of 27, he left his job and moved into his parents' love to become a campaigner against Brexit because he was frustrated that the pro-Remain argument was not being made effectively by mainstream politicians. He has also regularly appeared on television as a political commentator and has written for The Independent, The Guardian and The Metro. So far as the Brexit narrative, he is still fighting the good fight. So please, welcome to the show, Femi, Femi, sorry, better known as Femi Olawale. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, um, once when I was on BBC News, they actually called me Femi Sorry as if that was my actual last name. Um, That's amazing. Did you get them to change it? Uh, Well, I just had to just like look at the presenter like, what are you you doing? (laughs) Does it even sound like a name to you? I mean, Femi, I do this show every week with this, this, you know, me and Dane, right? And I research our guest. And you know what? I've got an eight-month-old child. And you know what? I've got other things to do, like my job. But it still doesn't take much to work out that you've got a fucking surname, does it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter handle happens to be everyone's. I mean, yeah, yeah it's ridiculous. But hey, uh, yeah. I guess maybe they couldn't pronounce it the Wally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but at the same time, there is no other person with the surname Sorry. This is true. So even that would have been a book when a conversation, even if that believed that she believed that to be a surname, wouldn't she be like, you know, that's an interesting name. Where's that from? 
Agreed. <laughs> and it allows you to potentially create a really great middle name, like uh, Never. Or uh, <laughs> well, basically, or, I came up. I came up with it because uh, I know that I tend to basically say whatever is right and blunt, regardless of how the sensitivities involved. And so I figured an inbuilt apology in my username would be the smart way to go. Well, yeah, I mean, mm. it's a, it's a smart way to go. Not the easiest path, as I'm sure you're aware. Mm. No. Not exactly. But, um, it's, got, it's got to be done. I, I, I too find myself always in these very contentious spaces um, saying what needs to be said without uh, taking heed of, uh, I suppose, European paternalistic fragility. You know, you know the thing. I mean, you know the thing. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, you're in a really interesting case of of, of, of of the power of the internet, Femi, I think. You know, not that it's impossible to say that we, we may have kind of discovered you without the internet if it hadn't existed but it's obviously served you incredibly uh incredibly well in some in some ways <laughs> in other ways not so much but yeah well absolutely i mean um back in 2016 i had 16 followers in in january uh and i'm about to go over 300,000 so back back in the day as they as they say uh mm. in june 2016 i remember i went to primark got a white t-shirt wrote felt it wrote and felt it pen eu questions just ask and stood in the center of birmingham city center just basically waiting for people to talk to me because i had zero platform cool. uh, and twitter has given me a voice that it's a very privileged position to be in but it took a long time to get there yeah. oh no and very much earned and and obviously definitely speaks to the fact that you know there was a a, a, a pretty much a void in the market of i oh, guess yeah. political uh, or socio-political discourse that needed it um, and yeah, and from a voice that we can trust, you know, I think a large part of these issues always is the, is the impotence that has come with politics where people just feel so disconnected that I don't think they even rely on politicians to even give an explanation on policy, which is strange. But Oh, oh absolutely. I mean, um, it, it is it's simply ridiculous. I should not have been able to do what I did. Yeah. One random, especially in, in an issue so utterly violently um, oppositional where people were all shouting, trying to clamor, clamor for airspace. I shouldn't have been able to rise as fast as I did in the Twitter sphere because there should have been larger politicians saying the right things, giving people the facts, understanding both sides. It's because of their failures that I've been able to do what I've done. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, you know, there's, there's glass, glass half full. I think it maybe will uh, in future help people to scrutinize actions of their politicians a lot more. Or at least I think the main thing has been that, you know, I think if you work through people like yourself has allowed it to be a capitalist whereby a capitalist. So that now when people even hear the term something like referendum, that's never going to be something I overlook because mm. I still goes, I mean, my own really real observation I made about Brexit so far as the outcome of the initial referendum is that. I don't think a, I think a lot of people underestimated, you know, how incompetent politicians can be if they're not engaging actively with you. And also, I think a lot yeah. of people definitely underestimated the, uh, you know, sentiment or the, I guess, the Anglo-Imperial sentiment outside of London. And also, you know, the people that have been disenfranchised by the regulation and by neoliberalism and by, you know, economic focus being on London for so many years. And, and a lot of people that really just don't understand how the Maastricht Treaty and the European Union works is probably the main one. So... Mm. Yeah, well, then yeah. That, that, that's that's the problem. You had there were very different groups within the Brexit voting population. There are those who are your Farage types, who it's all about ethno-nationalism, etc., uh, and xenophobia. But the biggest revelation that I had um, from that vote was the realization that it was utterly wrong to judge all Brexit voters by the standards of Nigel Farage. Yeah. And when I'm speaking to Remainers who just say, oh, "I have no idea how anybody could possibly vote for," vote for Brexit, I tell them, all right, put yourself in the shoes of somebody who was born in Redcar or Sw or, yeah. or Sunderland, um, an area that gets nothing from Westminster and hasn't done for 40 years. Your dad lost his job because Thatcher closed the shipyards and you've seen no investment in your area for 40 years while London's had the Millennium, Eye, hmm. Millennium Dome, London Eye, um, underground tube systems, and your vote means nothing because Labour always wins and the Tories always lose, so there's no incentive to do anything for you. And then here comes along Brexit and the person telling you to vote for status quo is the same person who's put you through eight years of austerity. No, you vote leave. Unless you unless you happen to be an expert in all issues of EU law, you vote leave. It was that simple in some ways, wasn't it? But um, but we're going to get into all this and more. Um, but it's probably time for a question, isn't it, Dane? As the uh, format of this show dictates. 
Absolutely. Very uh, in, in direct opposition to the Brexit vote, we like to establish a landscape for very open and direct discourse. Uh, by that token, <laughs> Femi, uh, we thank you for coming to the podcast and invite you to ask our first question, which is the only question you'd like to ask, which we'll discuss for 50 minutes and some change, then how to do the same, then ladder, rinse, repeat. I'll ask the final question, uh, which we'll discuss for 50 minutes, and then we'd like to leave a space so that those who are intrigued by your questions can find out more about you and where they can find you then we all go on to live, hopefully, prosperous lives, irrespective of the referendum. (laughs) How does that sound? Excellent. Cool, cool. Uh, So the floor is yours, my good man. Okay, my question would be, is logic more important than emotion? Mm. Oh, I love it. It's it's philosophical. (laughs) It's ethical. It's also based on the fact that the world's gone fucking mad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's great. Well, I don't, what, let me, I'm going to have to ask Femi, as I often like to, what inspired your question? Uh, so I'm somebody who, um, as a result <coughs> of some childhood trauma, ended up having to sort of very much segregate my brain in terms of emotions and logic just to basically keep myself uh, on a level playing field. Um, and... I realized from an early age that if you allow emotions to dictate your actions, you're not acting because of a rational analysis of how will my actions affect other people. You're acting based on how will my actions deal with the emotions that I'm currently feeling. And so you're more likely to make more selfish decisions if if emotion is your driving force rather than logic, especially as I the people who were responsible for the trauma I, I, I experienced, I was also able to, even from an early age, recognize that it was their inability to control their emotions that led to the trauma happening. Um, and so when I look at, when I look at things, if you apply that to politics, um, anybody can, def- anybody, most people think that they're in the right, but, and most, I mean, even some politicians who are doing things that most people would say is objectively wrong in their head, they think they're doing the right thing. And there is only one objective truth on, on this. There, you can add up the pros and cons, the negative effects and the positive effects, and there is one objective truth. Yet in their head, they think they're doing the right thing because of how it makes them feel. They feel mm. they're doing the wrong thing. So uh, a, a leaning towards a prioritization of feelings over logic ends up with more an, an, a narrower view of how your actions will affect other people. This is a, a, an incredible one to unwrap, isn't it? And and you kind of have to. Uh, and I, I know Dane often enjoys going down this this, yeah, <laughs> this road. Really... Look at look, looking at America and the role America has played in in international identity and culture is something that springs to my mind when I, th- I hear that question, Femi, because America is a very very emotional country. And very, very motivated by emotion, I'd say, perhaps more so than than any country. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, they, you know that whole stiff upper lip British thing. Yeah. You know, it's obviously you know nonsense and uh, leads to repressive problems in many mm-hmm. people. Um, <laughs> but the um, but the Americans are almost kind of at the I don't know in some ways. What do you think, Dane? At the opposite end of the spectrum, and, and emotion defies all logic for them because that's how I feel, man. So it's a really interesting point, the dichotomy of both of them, because I guess the human existence, as far as interacting with other human beings or our experience of life, uh, especially socially, is probably guided by those two, uh, I guess those two states of being, or being logical or being emotional. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's for me, I, for me, I, I think for you to be rounded and to thrive in society, it needs to be a combination of both. But I think... Yeah. Um, hmm. And by that the reason I say that is because I tend to find that emotions such as fear normally are the precursor to the abandonment of logic. Um, mm. So I, I think there are probably uh, it's, a, it's a hard thing because obviously there are a lot of phenomena within I guess within our, let's look for our country for example where there are a lot of phenomena where you would say it's very easy for this to be an issue that would be solved if you do apply logic. Like for me, for example, I find that if you live in a country whereby your universal healthcare system is at its optimal level, then that could only serve for there to be a higher output of people or citizens who have high access to healthcare would be more productive people and would then, for on a larger scale, contribute more positively to 
whatever your country's indicators of success are, whether it's a GDP or a balance of payments, et cetera, et cetera. But by the same token, I guess that that notion obviously stirs some kind of emotion within people and uh, tends to stifle that kind of thing from happening. So the, the real answer to the to the very kind of blunt, you know, is logic more important than emotion, um, would, would be, in my view, it depends what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, for example, we obviously have a politically active man on our show today. And when it comes to politics, I think you, you, you do have to use a lot more logic at times than emotion because you are trying to solve a problem that if you became overcome with emotion, it would not be the right way to solve it. Whereas I would argue that if you're trying to solve issues with your love life, you should have some logic. <laughs> there needs to be some logic, but I think you can also trust your emotions. I bet maybe that's what you're right. You're right maybe, maybe that's what it is, is that, is it, is the issue really about uh, whether to employ logic or, or, or emotion, um, or is it more the fact that understanding that both of those uh, states of being are very subjective? Because as well as what appears to be logical to some people might seem like insanity to another. So, for example, I guess you could argue logically if you are a conservative uh, member of parliament and you're trying to maintain your power base, it is logical for you to continue to perpetuate uh, sentiments of xenophobia and conservatism and corporatism amongst uh, voters and kind of, you know, continue to inculcate people with this idea of right of centre, Blairite uh, kind of uh, political uh, theory. But then mm. I suppose you can, you, can, you can understand the logic behind that and why it would work, but then I suppose your emotion in the form of maybe your conscience or your sense of empathy would dictate you'd understand why that is kind of illogical. So, yeah, Femi, Femi, what do you, what do you where, where do you, you've heard us answer a bit of the question, where do you stand on it? Um, so on that last issue around um, how it affects um, a potential conservative thinking that they're doing the right thing, if you look at what is the difference between left and right, it comes down to who benefits from your policy. So mm. on the on on the left on the on the on the on the extreme end of the left, you've got uh, we want policies that benefit everybody equally equally. And on the extreme end of the right, you've got we want policies that, that policies that benefit the specific group, be it a specific race, specific gender, yeah. specific religious group, etc. Um, but the reason why you get people on the right feeling that they're doing the moral thing is because they in themselves feel a, a stronger emotional connection. To the peeps of the specific group that they're um, that they're fighting for, and as a result, they feel they're doing the right thing by the people that really matter to them. Mm. Um, and that's how, if you allow a emotions to affect to um, dictate your reasoning, it can lead to morally negative outcomes. Mm -hmm. And how that links again to um, if you're dealing with a relationship. Um, uh, the, the phrase that I often use is emotion should be fuel for the engine, but never anywhere near the steering wheel. That's good. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. So it. you can, you can use emotional intelligence to figure out what um, somebody else is feeling. Use your logic to figure out what someone else is feeling. And based on that, use the empathy you get from that to drive you to make the most logical thing, do the most logical thing to help the other person, especially in the context of relationship. So that's how emotions are necessary, but they shouldn't necessarily dictate how you act. Because in terms of Brexit, which is a, a useful <laughs> uh, thing to compare emotion versus logic, mm. um, I mean, you know, the, the emotion and in some cases the wrong kind of emotion, although there was some emotion that inspired the Brexit, you know, uh, event uh, that had justification. You know, there, there, there are some there are some elements of all that emotion that came out that, that you know that, that, that requires yeah. attention, but um, it won out in a really bizarre, incoherent way, didn't it? <laughs> uh, and, and it never, you know, I mean, it would be fascinating to think that in 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 maybe when we're old old men, uh, that you'll see some kind of different version of it where. You know, I, I still think you know the only solution to the world's problems is for all the countries to work together in a very coherent way, and that's yep. that's that's not emotion. I think that's logic, isn't it? That's yeah. the logic of surviving on a planet that has limited resources. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's not that's not too difficult for people to get their heads around, right, Dane? <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> uh, I think that no, I think it's uh, I think yeah, the whole thing about um, fueling the engine is probably the best way you can put it. And I just think yeah, there's definitely got to be. Uh, 
I think there's definitely a duality, there is a duality in which both can exist. But I think, yeah, maybe it's the application of which I think logic, um, when people are presenting something in the form of a social science, so I guess the study of society and people's stratification of groups and tribes, it's quite a, uh, it's a very quantitative field. You can, you can basically understand that, like, if you're going to use a system like democracy, then on that basis, then you would logically think that people who have a higher level of representation in particular areas would be entitled to have more of a uh, dominant uh, control over government policy. But then you, you look at a phenomenon like colonialism, that is kind of in direct contradiction to that. So it's kind of illogical in that mm. respect. So I would say, I mean, I guess in, one, in some ways you could argue that, like I said, I guess it's, it's a harder question to answer because the notion of logic and the notion of emotion can both be seen as very subjective. So it's uh, what's logic to some people, and like I said, protects some people, and, and, and a logical idea driven by an emotional need or compulsion will make, make logical sense to one group and, not, and be completely logical to another group. And the consequence of that is that you, if, even if you were to buy into the logic of this group means you protect this group, uh, even if it um, creates uh, animosity towards another group, is that as a whole, the result of that is, well, we've, we can see it in uh, America, we can see it in the UK. Those societies are both significantly weaker because of the inequality. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because of the inequality, because of the uh, binary nature of politics, because of the antagonism between left and right, those countries are both weaker. Which which would, I guess, which was lent to a real display of, you know, of the illogical, despite trying to appear to be, you know, you know, the idea of bipartisan political infrastructure is supposed to be, you know, secular and uh, not based on emotion. But essentially, like you said, I, I would argue, maybe you could argue most logical and progressive ideology begins with an emotional belief. So are they, are they necessarily completely distinct from one another? So, for example, I guess there are certain practices in terms of maybe within the paradigm of family, which it's logical to arm your family members with or to avoid any kind of external trauma. But by the same token, having you know, the emotional awakening of being, having trauma inflicted on you or being aware of, you know, having a non-conventional familial unit, again, it would be logical to maybe be distanced from that and to not, and it would be logical to understand that family isn't just a function of sharing the same genetics as somebody. So, I mean, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say in terms of answering the question is, um, my, my short answer would be kind of that they are, it's very hard to uh, separate the two, hence me saying, yeah, in terms of the, Emotion being the fuel but not steering the wheel, I think is really the best way of quantifying the answer. I think you can't have one without the other, really. Yeah. I think you have to, you have to in some ways, uh, it's like that idea that power corrupts, right? I think <laughs> in the, the, these these things kind of feed feed each other. But then, yeah, but I suppose it's like, do you remember the film I, Robot with Will Smith? Yeah. Where, yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, I love that. An example where obviously the three lords of robotics that a, a robot is supposed to preserve life and... Uh, what happens is that mm. in, a, in a car crash, a car, a car crashes into like a, a lake and and it's always it's going, it's falling off a bridge. Off a bridge. But basically, there's a robot that comes along to save Will Smith and like a young kid. And the mm. robot does the uh, probability check of like the likelihood of saving them both. And because the probability of saving the child is so low, then he just saves Will Smith. And Will Smith is... But that was somebody's baby. Yeah, Will Smith's like it's somebody's baby. Like, that, that you, you, you at least try it, but a robot doesn't really see it that way. So in that instance, mm. does emotion override logic? I wouldn't necessarily say it does. To use, to, use, to use one final example, um, and this is from law, one of the reasons why I kind of gave up on being a lawyer is that I felt that the law itself wasn't really guided by morality. Mm-hmm. And the example that I used for this was the, it's called the gauche test. It's basically the, the thing, the test that decides if somebody um, should be convicted of theft. Now, to be convicted of theft, sorry, to get away with, um, to, be con- to be deemed innocent in theft, you need to um, get something, but believe either A, the jury needs to think that what you did was honest, or B, the defendant needs to believe that the average person would consider their actions to the be honest. The reasonable man argument. Yeah. Uh, well, in, it's, the, it's the defendant's perception of what the reasonable man is, yes. which, is the, which is the important thing. Mm-hmm. Now, in that particular section of the test, it means that if you're somebody who has a, who believes that the average person would have also acted as you did, you're more likely to get off. Now, the problem hmm. with that is, good people tend to have a higher view of what the common standard of morality is. So if you generally feel that you're, that, um, you sh- that all people should put other people first, 
you're more likely to find your actions to have been unacceptable and therefore you're more likely to go to jail. Whereas somebody who's a bad person and therefore has no sense of feeling of, uh, of uh, loyalty or, or community with his fellow citizen, you're more likely to think that what your actions were, your actions were okay and because most people would also act as you did and therefore you're more likely to get off. Yeah. So it's actually a backwards way of, of uh, the allowing emotions to get into that ends up in a, in a perversion of justice. And I, and I, I, th- I think example. there's probably a longer conversation about how, who set that up as well, because, you know, when you think about <laughs> the amount of times that people are supposed to be reviewed by a jury of their peers and the people that are the jurors are not their peers. You ain't my peer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. No, no chance. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And it, it kind of feeds into actually a little bit of kind of where my question was going to go. I'm excited to, to have you on the on the show, Femi, and thank you for that question. It's brilliant. Um, okay. Yeah, really, really interesting one. But the, um, you know, I think, I think, you, you know, it's weird to think about the history books, right, nowadays, because it feels like we're living through a really fucking weird period of history. Mm. Um, and it's weird to think, I, I, well, maybe you don't think this is weird, I don't know, that you might come up in those history books, Femi. <laughs> yeah. Because you, you, you know, you... Uh, would have been a first tribe of online activists reaching a point of impact. Mm. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't want to demean what you did in any way, but I, I, I think it's, it's hugely down to the fact that people were disenfranchised with yeah. the current state of politics. And my question to you and Dane is a, it's a big, broad, sweeping one, which is what kind of politics will positively engage people again uh what is the future of politics if it was good (laughs) is is maybe the simplest way of saying it so if you could just solve the world's problems for me in this next 15 minutes that'd be great basically mate (laughs) so i i guess i can only speak from my own experience and uh i've been told not to uh publicly self-analyze because it can come off either arrogant or say something that embarrasses myself but if I were to think about what what aspects of me have allowed me to grow in the last in the last couple few years, uh, it's a planning for your next trip. Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I've, I'm completely okay with being wrong on certain issues. I don't claim to... Uh, always be right. If I'm wrong, I answer. I, I, I admit to being wrong as soon as I find out new information. I I'm I'm willing to show my ignorance on certain issues, but I'm also um, like a, I am ferociously determined to. If I know that I'm right on one issue, I'm ferociously determined to prove that point and bash out any arguments in my way to get to that truth. Um, so a bit. So honesty and humility in terms of what you don't know and strength on what you do is something that's missing. A little bit of compassion and empathy for those on the other side of the argument is something that, again, I feel that I'm people recognize as a value in me because um, hmm. I, I don't try... I always try and argue from the perspective of the person I'm arguing with. I, I, I take what their, what their ideology is and just basically work it through to its logical conclusion to point out any flaws if I believe there are, there are some. So, it's, so a, a less even though it's confrontational, a less oppositional uh, stance on things. Yeah, so so not as kind of 
finite like this is this is what it is and then if someone says well it's not is it you you could you you could actually back down <laughs> and change your tactic yeah. or change your approach it comes down to also who, who i am as a person because in terms of friendship i value my friends based on their ability to call me out on my own bullshit so if i've got a hmm. friend who can convince me i'm wrong i want to keep that friend around because i know how opinionated i am and so i want to be challenged on things and that that general attitude to wanting to know the truth regardless of what of how it makes me look or how, how or whether or not it weakens my argument that level of honesty is is one of the things that's missing missing in politics and people and yeah. i think people want more of that yeah people are people are bored of it Dane, aren't they a lot of lot of people are just sick of it they just they, they know you meet if someone told you they were a, politi- met a politician people just instantly don't trust them right um, I mean, yeah, in, in many cases, and that's just basically just coming from the level of detachment over years of systems becoming more and more archaic. I'm not sure if that's necessarily the same with all countries within the West, but I think when you contextualise, uh, I suppose, political structures with the rise in capitalism and the resultant power that's come from people that have been able to enjoy the perks of capitalism, which would be like, I guess, your 1% or your ruling class in Republican nations, um, yeah, I, th- I think, and also, I guess I think that there is a certain level of, uh, I guess, adap- adaptation that's come with uh, the emerging political ideologies we have. So a lot of these have just been ideas that came out of the Second World War, whereby original ways of controlling and stratifying people, like along lines of religion or religious denomination, mm. wouldn't really work for the World War. And also, I guess, having people to align behind a nation under the basis of imperial conquest for many nations who would have been on the losing side of the war, again, would it have been a particularly uh, useful ideology. So this is where a lot of them have come out. And I think, again, but it's at the point now where, yeah, we are just, at, I think, at the apex of the efficacy of political systems as they existed before. And I just think, for example, the Labour Party is a shadow of what it once was. Not that the tenets of, you know, socialism or egalitarianism don't work anymore, but the incarnation under they work within Labour and Labour's ability to try and contextualize that existence alongside conservatives doesn't really work anymore so what do you think they need to do uh for the labor party i think they mm. need i think that they need to uh splinter i think people that uh, identify with the more classic ideas about socialism um in, or or corbynistas for lack of a better expression should go one way and uh people that uh, adhere to the more blairite ideas about left of center and neoliberalism should form their own party. Ultimately, I'd agree with you, but not yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not as simple as tomorrow. or it, it, With the same efficacy and the speed at which UKIP is, exists as almost like a shell party for the people that are too crazy to be Tories, then I don't think it'd be as quick as that. But I think ultimately, uh, uh, the left wing as it exists, or what, or what now comes under it, needs to be a lot more uh, scrutinised because, and I think that's, and that's come from, you know, I believe from where social media has had a lot more of a uh, nuanced democracy to political narratives. I just don't think that uh, the political structures represent that just yet. And yeah, over the course of time, I think people really need to establish their principles and to try and be able to contextualise those in a world of, you know, global capitalism, as well as, you know, I think uh, environmental and ecological policy is uh, crucial to any kind of uh, political narrative now as well. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, yeah. like I said, ultimately I think it's time to go, it's time to move. But I just think there are new aspects of human existence which are going to require, you know, a very explicit political ideology in order to kind of manage mm. those. If we're talking about that line between left of centre and left, um not my area of expertise. Uh, I, I'm, I'm aware of those. I'm aware of those that divergence. And I think, given the animosity between the two camps, I think ultimately we do. We will need to get to a part where there are two different parties. However, the reason why we currently have Tories in power, the reason why even though they got 44 percent of the vote, they have 100 percent of the power, is because there was essentially one party on the right and there were several parties on the left. Yes. As a result, in any constituency, if, for example, 30% vote Labour, 30% vote Lib Dem, 40% vote, 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 vote Tory, you're going to have a majority voting for centre, left of centre, and a minority voting for the right. The right will win in every constituency. If that happened in every constituency, you'd have all the MPs being Tories. So we simply do not have a political setup right now that will accommodate 
um, having multiple parties on the left. What needs to happen is there needs to be an acceptance that the next election, parties will put their political differences aside for the per- and form an electoral pact based on committing to electoral reform within the first 12 months of taking office. Because if all votes count equally, then it doesn't matter if, if Labour splits into a thousand different parties because you'll still get a th- um, um, all the MP, you'll still get equal, uh, a progressive vote reflecting in a progressive parliament. But when you think about 20, 30 years time, if you were an advisor, uh, you know, kind of or had an incredible, uh, what would we, how would you, because there's, there's loads of elements at play, right? Which I think weirdly to me don't feel left-wing and right-wing. Yeah, I think, um, I, I agree with you, Howard. I, I, I mean, I think especially that, uh, well, I think plutocracy and corporatism is kind of basically is the now prevalent government. I was about to bring up Bezos. I was about to bring up Jeff Bezos. Like, you know, there's something that you could find them staunch right-wing and staunch left-wing people and go, well, of course Amazon should pay all their fucking tax. Like, what are you, <laughs> what do you mean there? You know, it's not, there's nothing to do with racism or xenophobia or... It's so difficult because then you have a world whereby, and this is the thing, on a larger scale, it's the entire system that will have to be overhauled because I don't see how you can bemoan Amazon for not paying tax then incentivize an HMRC to chase that tax and how you incentivize them is with money. So if I was a tax mm. evader and someone was like, you got to pay your tax, it's like, well, I can even pay my bill of how many millions and say, like, say, say my tax bill's like 30 million. I'm going to say to this guy, I'll pay you half a million if you go look the other way. So, I mean, on the large scale of capitalism and how it influences uh, political ideology is something we'll definitely have to look at as well. Because while you live in a world while that exists and people can be incentivized financially, then it's going to be very hard to establish any effective political system that's going to look after people that are disenfranchised by the system of capitalism. Because, you know, it's like, for example, anyone who understood politics would know how embarrassing and how pointless it was for somebody like Donald Trump to become president. Because if you are a billionaire, you don't need to become president and have your indiscretions in the public eye. You can just lobby a politician and they can implement policies on your behalf. You don't have to be a complete fucking idiot and egotist and narcissist to still want to have your face out there knowing full well that now you're going to go from the status of a billionaire where everyone is nice to you and answers to you to you being the most answerable person in the free world. Mm-hmm. And the brain could have kind of foresaw mm-hmm. that. So, so um, on the issue of uh, what you said about how a, a, a racist could still want people want Amazon to pay their, pay their taxes, I think we do have a fundamental problem with the understanding of left and right that it exists on multiple yeah. different levels. You could be uh, left wing on corporate tax, but you could be right wing on yes. race, um, uh, aka a racist. Um, and and that and that problem is is why you have um, people trying to label one side as one thing by grouping all the issues together, yeah. even though people yeah. are. Yeah, and hence what's called uh, was referred to as Blexit in the states in the run up to the uh, presidential election, whereby a number hmm. of black uh, pundits and uh, spokespeople like Candice Owens and Kanye West are trying to move black the black caucus away or the black voting caucus away from the Democratic Party, saying that because of the you know the conflation of racism with the Republican Party, that it's both using to give that black people vote um, Democrats without it representing their needs. So I completely agree with that as well. Mm. And I think, yeah, it's it's the bipartisan political system as it exists, like you said, Femi, I think is now become very archaic. And like you said, because there's so much intersectionality in terms of the fact that, you know, the Ku Klux Klan was founded by people largely who would have been members of the Democratic Party for a large part of the uh, white working class in America who felt that their opportunities were going to become uh, damaged or they were going to lose their uh, employment opportunities as a result of emancipation of slaves. So mm. I really, mm. yeah. But I just think, I think there has to be things that unite people. That's, that's to me the only, you know, and I think about... Well, maybe we should ask, time. why are people so opposed no. to, like when you hear people in discussions of politics and obviously some of the more extreme uh, ideas like a QAnon et al., why are they also opposed to a new world order or a one world government? Now, I don't, it's not, this wasn't my question, but I'm just like, I'm just like, it's, it's uh, like, it's, because we all understand that there are certain issues which have to kind of be united under, like I think issues of ecology, uh, sustainability are issues, uh, you know, our, predisp- our predisposition to potentially maybe disease and stuff, an issue like a pandemic. These are all, you know, where the policy in terms of dealing with these should all be quite universal. Um, so that would need to happen first, I guess, before... Or is it that political parties are really held to a unified manifesto which they must satisfy first before they can implement their own policies? 
conservatives and and the right in general, I know I just criticized the notion of, of lumping them all together, but the general thing of conservative by definition is a reluctance and a resistance yeah. to change. And given that we have uh, now the ability to use acad- academia to point out things that do need to change, be it our reliance on fossil fuels, be it having the statistical knowledge to see that um, structural racism, structural inequality, be it on race, gender, ethnicity, etc. Given that we now have the facts to know that those things exist, and given that the principle of equality is now firmly ingrained in most people's heads, we do know that things need to change in quite fun- fundamental ways. And so you're going to get people that are reluctant to change pushing against that. And so the and so they will use the terms like new world order um, to scare those who are reluctant, who are resistant to change, and to say no, these people want to completely change your way of life. They want to break down the fabric of society, etc. Uh, and that's the sort of narrative that they use to discourage people. Um, moving just slightly back to the issue of uh, what kind of politics um, should people are people interested in? Uh, I used to, as part of our future our choice, um, visit schools on a regular basis and speak to 16, 17 year olds about politics. And every single time, I would start the I would start the session by saying, "All right, raise your hand here if you care about politics." And in many schools, not yeah. one hand would go up. And so my next question would be, all right, raise your hand if you care how much stuff costs in the shops. Every hand goes up. Raise your hand if you care whether or not you get a job when you leave school. Every hand goes up. Raise your hand if you care whether or not you can work in another country. Every hand goes up. And I say, that's politics. Uh, It's about making it relevant to people because people feel utterly disconnected and and feel that the politics is just... I mean, me personally, when I was 18 uh, and below, I would just see politics as this thing in Westminster with old people shouting at each other not something that would ever affect my life directly, whereas we're all seeing politics more and more, especially in recent couple of years, affect our li- our daily lives very strongly. Yeah, it's it's an amazing, I mean, what an amazing take on it, Femi, and I think you, well, I'm sure there's a book coming from you at some point. <laughs> I mean, you, I mean, it'd be, it'd be surprised if it wasn't, but then, um, I mean, just talking <laughs> about the zeitgeist, as you described, it's going to have to be an audio book. Because, well, yeah, yeah, people, people nowadays. But, but that's going back to the first question as well, Howard. Because it's saying, you know, the just the connotation, just the word politics has been indoctrinating to people to make most members of the laity switch off because they've been educated with the idea that that is a discipline or that is a field of study or knowledge that they don't, they're not involved in at that particular level. And the question is, is like, well, why and, every tabloid? And that's one of the like, problems. You can look on a tabloid, and most most average average person would be able to break down to start an eleven for the England football team. But we're going to tell you, we're going to tell you five members of the cabinet, and that's not, not an insult to the population. But it's like again, there is some there is a social engineering whereby this political structure, which governs the mechanics of your life, is what most people are unaware of or have been trained to become adverse to it. Like I was so crazy, like people say, no religion, no politics when you're in a pub. Well, in vino veritas, so people say what they fucking think when they've been drinking. Mm. And also, why wouldn't you discuss in an area where you're surrounded in a familiar surroundings? Surrounded by your friends, would you not be able to have an honest and open conversation about topics which guide your fucking existence? Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, look, I mean, we're going to move on to Dane's question in a sec, but I would say one thing that I think, you know, a lot of people can get their heads around. And, and I think when you're dealing with difficult people, uh, it's often who, who are kind of quite maybe closed minded or, or, or I think one thing that really helps to get across to them is we, what's gone is gone. And, and, and we do have to try and look forward and be progressive uh, and uh, solving our problems. And, you know, as a Jew, <laughs> as a Jew, I can say, you know, we're definitely a, a group of people. We've definitely spent a lot of time thinking about the past and, you know, there's, there's value to that, but it's also a real value to thinking about the future and, and what, are going to be some solutions to mm. these big problems we all face, no matter who you are or what your faults are. Uh, and I don't think that gets said enough, personally. Um, but right. maybe maybe that was too dramatic, Dane. I don't know. Am I being too dramatic? <laughs> no, this is me running for... Well, why, 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 why not? <laughs> I mean, you know, me. again, I, I just remember growing up with the Monster Raven Looney party thinking that was very funny and then getting older realising that's something that someone can do as a dalliance because they have so much money because I think for you to form a political party, is it like a minimum <laughs> of 10 grand you need? And who, and who, who necessarily got that yeah. line, line, line around? Yeah, exactly. Mm. To spunk it up the wall like that guy did, mm. but um, but um, listen, it, it was great to hear you guys talk about that. And I know Dane's got a question up his sleeve uh, for you, Femi. That I'm excited to hear what you think about. 
Cool. Well, um, it's based on hopefully dovetailing the conversations we've had before in terms of our understanding of politics as they exist and also with Brexit. And I would go so far as to say, like most intense political issues, it's kind of been obscured from our vision and from our ears in terms of how Brexit is proceeding now. And I think people still are unaware of the effects. Anyway, I'm trying to be positive and negative. Well, I suppose I, I guess I'm going to be idealistic and romantic in that. Femi, you have the, you you took up the mantle with a sharpie and a t-shirt and decided to fight the good fight, and obviously clearly were astounded at the lack of awareness that people had about uh, European policy. If you were given the task of drafting a trade deal with the EU, <laughs> what key things would need to be included in there in order to because you you know because what you've all said as well, Femi, is that you've taken the time to understand the needs of Leave voters or to understand Mm -hmm. what uh, led to their decisions. So if you could find a, you know, solution that would be a moderate solution for both sides, what would that consist of? So the irony of my position is that I've been trying to unite both sides on an issue where the concept of compromise very much doesn't exist, even from a factual basis. So if you look at what um, Lee voters wanted and said they wanted... Uh, they wanted more control over their country. The idea of laws being made without their control and consent in Brussels and a foreign country, they didn't like that. They wanted British laws to be made in Britain. And they also uh, argued that they could do that without damaging our standard of living at all by not uh, and not damage trade. Now, the problem is that that doesn't really work. If you take, if you take labor, for example, they tried to find a compromise. They said, all right, we will protect the free flow of goods and stuff that we buy from uh, the EU and sell to the EU by staying in the single market, even though we've left the EU. Now, the problem with that was that meant that we would keep the economic benefits and therefore not really suffer economically, not suffer financially. But we'd be in the EU single market. Now, the single market is a system of rules, which means that anything made in the UK can be sold across the EU. But that means that the, the laws of the EU will still apply to the, to the UK. But because we're no longer members of the EU, we'd no longer have a say in how those laws are made. And before Brexit, the UK had 73 of the 750 members of the European Parliament, which meant that mathematically, we have three times more voting power than the average EU country. That's a significant amount of say. And yet, the only version of Brexit that was possible to protect us economically is one that ended up with us following the same rules, but with no say, which is the exact opposite of what Brexit voters wanted. So as much Hmm. as people talked about how we should find a compromise, there really wasn't one on the table because of a fundamental misunderstanding of what the EU was. Now, I say fundamental misunderstanding, not to imply that just leavers were less educated than Remainers, because I had to explain these topics to Remainers largely so they could have then have the conversations with leavers in a constructive way. That's what I spent most of my campaigning years doing. Um, and it, and it, it, it's, it was so bad that I had to correct the BBC's definition of the single market in 2018. For about six months of 2018, this BBC's website um, defined the single market as basically a free trade deal, i.e. zero tariffs. Whereas in fact, um, that it's primarily to do with regulations. And the example that I uh, regularly used was, imagine if you wanted to sell a product, let's say beer or, or pharmaceuticals to every country, all 28 countries, but each country regulated pharmaceuticals or beer or whatever in different ways. You'd have to manufacture, market, and package your products in 28 different ways and comply with the regulatory checks, which would send your red tape costs through the roof. And we're seeing that today. We're seeing the problems hmm. of, of, of that at the borders. It's no longer trade. hypothetical, is it's it? No longer, <laughs> it's no longer hypothetical. That's why the single market exists, because it creates barriers, which, by the way, hit smaller companies significantly more than larger companies. So helping, giving multinational corporations a larger advantage and, and smaller companies are the ones that suffer. And again, we're seeing that today. So what the EU does is it A, has a system of rules which are made commonly together in Brussels, but also a principle of mutual recognition, which means if the EU hasn't made a rule in a certain area, then as long as your product meets the requirements of your country, it can automatically be sold in all 28 countries. Now that's the system that we've just left. So we could choose to sign a sign a, a new trade deal that kept us within that system in order to prevent 
um, a significant rise in poverty in the UK, but it would be the exact opposite of what Leave voters were expecting when they voted for Brexit. And we we are therefore going to end up where is <laughs> is the, the fucking disastrous thing, right, well, Dane? Yeah, I guess it remains to be seen. I mean, what we can all agree is that, like David Cameron knew <laughs> he knew how bad this was. <laughs> yeah. and the first time he tried to run away from yep. his problems, he left his child in a pub, and then he was like, "If they vote for this, I will fuck a pig again." And they were like, "No way, David." Dad's ridiculous. That you know me. You know what I'm about. You know what I'm on. If they vote to leave, I'm fucking a pig, bro. No one, no one is that dumb, bro. And then it happened. And he was like, "Oh my pig fucking days." And they were like, "Well, a bet is a bet, David." And he was like, "Ah, uh, quit, y'all. It's crazy. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's just. I just um. It's just. It's just crazy that there is. That it was. It, it's been such. It's. It explains why it's so polarized. But it's just again relates to the fact that some of this is driven by logic and some of this is largely driven by emotion. And uh, people have, uh, have been able to manipulate this. Are, are there are there no uh, policies about the EU that benefit even Leave voters without them realising that we could implement and just tell them to shut up? Um, well, uh, there are... <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, the laws of the EU that um, Leave voters weren't aware of, I mean, Nigel Farage spread a narrative around immigration that immigration was completely unrestricted, whereas, in fact, the EU specifically has rules which say you can come here for more than three months if you either have a job or have sufficient resources not to become a burden on our welfare states and have your own comprehensive medical insurance. So that whole narrative of they come here, sponge off the NHS, live, live off benefits, that was... Uh, a complete lie. Um, so there were me- mechanisms on that. Why did he lie, Fenny? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> because he, he he knows that essentially our country, uh, I mean, I and I include myself in this to a large extent, was ignorant of the ways in which uh, of how, how the EU affected us um, pr- prior to 2016, and and one of the reasons why there were so, we were so vulnerable to that level of manipulation is because every government, blue and red, for 40 years has had one single policy. If it's ra- if it's sunny, it's Westminster. If it's rainy, it's the EU. That's what we've hmm. been drip fed by politicians for a very long time. Every every directive the EU passed, which the UK then implemented, which was positive, the UK would take credit for it. Everything the EU did, which we which we felt was negative, uh, even if it was us implementing it in the wrong way, again blame the EU, and that's why we were so vulnerable to that level of uh, of misinformation. Yeah, it's. I mean, <laughs> you know, me and Dane have sat for the last couple of years doing this podcast, Femi. And fuck me, we've picked a pretty interesting time to be doing this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I do think one thing that comes up in my head when I hear, you know, listening to you guys talk, it's it's amazing to think how, you know, the the phrase woke has been Mm. broken in so many respects now, but we are uh, enlivened and... um, charged to engage in a way that I think, I don't know if we were really doing before so much of, you know, obviously Brexit timed uh, a similar time uh, (laughs) to a few other events uh, that have seemed to have played some importance, including a a reality star becoming president. Mm. Um, And so to me, it just feels like, you know, that whilst there is this kind of what definitely now feels irreversible that we're out of the European Union. I don't think the, the kind of the mentality is irreversible on a on a grand scheme of things. I do think there is a way to you know fight back and 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 find something going back to the beginning that feels logical as well as emotionally succinct with what people want. Mm. Um. But, uh, and, and I'll, I'll touch on this at the end, the way you get there is by changing the voting system. It, it, yeah. it is that simple. You can't, you, can't, you can't achieve change when the people who are standing in the way of change can get 100% of the power off a minority of the votes. You just can't do it. All the things that we need changed, for example, to address systemic racism by introducing blind CVs, um, so that because I mean, right now, you, if you've got a Nigerian-sounding name, you have to send eighty percent more job applications yeah. to get a job offer. The Tories can change that tomorrow. They could change that tomorrow. They're choosing not hmm. to. 
um, they could um, it, it could improve the syllabus so that we learn um, more about his more histories about other 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 countries rather than I know for me it was just World War One World War Two. And, and how ironic that all of our allies in those wars and all of our, we are now betraying all of our allies in these wars. How ironic. You're supposed to know it. We fought yeah, in a exactly. war and now we've turned around and exactly. snaked every single person we fought along. And not only that, we even represent the same ideology as the people we fought against in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's why, that's why, um, yeah, last night, uh, uh, Nigel Farage was tweeting against the European Convention on Human Rights, which essentially came about as a response to the Nazis. Uh, which is How many times does God have to try and kill this man mm. before people realise? If you get two <laughs> helicopter crashes, who does that happen to? God is trying to kill this man. Clearly. Obviously. Obviously. No one good doesn't have lips. Listen, you know, there's only two groups of people you throw milk on to kill them, okay? The lactose intolerant mm. and demons. Everyone knows that. Even if you throw milk on me, I don't burn. Yeah, I don't Buffy, burn. Buffy, the, Buffy, Buffy the vampire slayer used to use that, right? It means you're evil, clearly. Yeah, it is a very I good. I tell time. you what, I tell you what, no, it, it, you know, working in in TV, you know, I kind of often think we we can, you know, we can help. If we if well, that, we try, that if we really try. If you like have, I think uh, in, for the BBC, which is a government-funded institution, and the Tories decide, I mean, it would be very difficult. It's a very difficult an scenario. Yeah, minister yeah. who no black person's ever met in their entire life saying that critical race theory is illegal. Mm. Mm. I mean, it's mm. but also their whole mandate is 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 forever kind of challenging its own existence um by you know the, the the need to for balance which is obviously something that is is almost impossible in many respects but um well it, it, it lessens the impact of you know i mean also the fact that they're saying they want balance so they've just put out six hours of adam curtis films is uh is beyond me but anyway um which are we're amazing guys you should check them out i just, I just, I just want to add as well on the, on the subject of emotion emotion and logic to MP Preeti Patel, if your dad couldn't come here because of your immigration laws, you wouldn't exist. Mm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so that's a Back to the Future that never, never got the chance to play out, right? That could. <laughs> Wait, is she know, trying but... to undo herself? Has she come back? Maybe, yeah. maybe that's what she is. Maybe she realizes how bad it is that she's come back in time to be like, I should not. She's the I worst Marty be. McFly ever. <laughs> she's like, she's like in that eight film Alien Resurrection when there's like the half Ripley, half Alien, and he just goes, "Kill me." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because he realizes it's an abomination. <laughs> On that bombshell, it's been a great episode today. Dude, politically, Howard, that is not, that's barely that's barely a firecracker. Like, it's so good. <laughs> On that note, no, we are going to uh, wrap up today's episode, which has been, you know, uh, we we do so many different types of episode on this on this show, and and it, and it was such a political episode today, Dane. But I think people want that. I think I think I think people do. I I I think the only issue with politics is the fact that it's political. I think the nomenclature associated with bipartisan politics what people is what people do not like. But I think anyone discussing ideas and uh, belief systems that dictate their lives are. Of in our most important to everyone, so mm-hmm. I, I mean it's political, but I think everything is. That's the problem. Well, I think I think what you've done, uh, Femi, is you know inspirational and heroic. You know, really, I mean, I don't often use those those terms, uh, but uh, you know what you've done, it, it, and I hope you continue your good work. And it's really been a a joy to have you uh, have you with us today. Appreciated. Um, and the one thing I'd I'd say if we're talking about things I, c- I can promote is. We need to fix the voting system. So Make Votes Matter is the biggest organization that's that's pushing to um, reform the voting system. Uh, if you're in Labour, push for Labour labor PR to get more and more uh, strength within the Labour Party so that we can get Labour to commit to electoral reform. Because if we do make it so that every vote counts equally, then more people will get in- engaged in politics because they will feel their vote matters rather than being stuck in constituencies where they know the Tories are going to win regardless of what they do. So we need to get more people engaged in politics by making politics fairer. Absolutely. Um, So uh, this has been amazing. So Femi, uh, for people that want to find more about the works you've done on previous works and for this upcoming book slash uh, political (laughs) manifesto that we know you're going to need, where can our listeners find you, please? Uh, So I'm at Femi underscore sorry on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and also TikTok, um, uh, which is new. So I've tried to to keep a balance between that, doing that and and miming, doing little dances uh, and COD, of course, um, COD videos. Uh, Yeah, that's where I'm at. Lovely. 
Call of Duty, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Old, for old people like me, not <laughs> fish. No, just yeah. Some people who are old on this show, they might not, you know. Yeah, not, not me, I Because people would be like, now this liberal's getting our fish. We fought for that fish. <laughs> we fought for that fish. And now he's got it. We fought for them for them seas back. Fishing back to the British. And that Fermi's taken them. What's happened to my country? Yeah, it's definitely me and not Brexit that's fucked the fishing industry. <laughs> <laughs> Femi, respect and thank you again for coming yeah, on our show. Pleasure. Thank you so much. And, uh, pleasure. Please do stay in touch, man. Uh, I'd love to know more about what you're doing and hopefully we can see you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, hosted by Dane Baptiste. For more from Dane, go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him on Twitter at DaneBapTweets or Instagram at DaneSnapTeast. Our guest was Femi Oluwole. You can follow Femi on Twitter and Instagram at Femi underscore sorry. The show is produced by me, Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by Audio Culture. You can follow Audio Culture on Instagram at WeAreAudioCulture. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQE Podcast. Thanks to Polly, Gelly and the ACAST team for all their support. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything. <laughs>